Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we've got a very awesome guest on the show once again. But this one is a very, very awesome guest. We've got Dr. Georgia Wardfear, who is a conservation scientist and postdoc at Macquarie University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Georgia. Thanks, Amelia. Hopefully starting with an easy question. Are we able to ask, what is your job? Well, I would say first and foremost, I'm a wildlife biologist and I work in terrestrial ecosystems, um, but I'm a conservation scientist. So, you know, as you said, I'm a postdoc uh, at Macquarie University. And what that means is that I've done a PhD and I'm based at a university. So I'm doing my research on the conservation of reptiles across tropical Australia. And the project I am running at the moment is I'm trying to decrease the impacts of cane toads on predators across northern Australia by going ahead of the invasion front and training them not to eat cane toads by giving them small doses of cane toad toxin that makes them sick but doesn't kill them. And then they have a food poisoning response and uh, and uh, I learn to avoid cane toads ever after. I'm, I've now got this like mental image of you with a teeny tiny spoon as a, and a lizard like trying to, trying to get it to eat this yucky thing. Like, how, do, how do you do that? <laughs> it's not too far off. Well, uh, you know... Uh, well, so I'm a wildlife biologist, I study ecology. So that is the interaction of animals with plants and the ecosystem um, and also with other animals. Um, but I also study the animal behaviour. So the the way that we train animals depends upon their hunting strategy uh, and their local ecology. Um, with some animals, we need to actually release small toads, tiny toads that aren't toxic enough to kill them. And with some animals, we um, we actually deploy sausages that are made of cane toad meat with a a, a chemical in it that that makes them sick. So it just depends on what to, on on the way that the the predators hunt. So we we work with well, I'm a reptile specialist, so I work with goannas and snakes and crocodiles, uh, and and most of those animals we we use kind of bits of cane toad as baits or small t- cane toads that we release into the environment. That's fantastic. I'd never in my entire life thought of a cane toad sausage (laughs) well you don't want to try one (laughs) (laughs) fantastic do you want to talk a little bit about what you did in your phd as well well my phd was actually developing that 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 methodology i worked with a large species of goanna in cross across northern australia that's really abundant before the toads get there but just gets um hammered once the toads arrive and i and i actually trialed that training methodology with them um, to see whether it worked and um, you know that that species is really important not just for the environment but also for indigenous peoples across northern australia it's a really important bush tucker food and so i work closely with the traditional indigenous owners of the region um, to do this kind of conservation work so my job really is about uh, working with animals but then applying what we've learned with those from those animals to kind of conservation issues learning how to save them or or to kind of decrease the impacts of invasive species. Yeah, cool. So working all the way from one individual animal, getting to understand that like creature system, all the way up to the large scale, whole of landscape kind of concept. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I actually have really multiple multiple parts to my work. I, I really love animal behaviour. And so I work at the, as you said, at the individual level, looking at behavioural variation within populations. 
um, and then you know scaling out to you know to trying to trying to save populations and then when you're dealing with an invasive species like the cane toad you're kind of looking at saving species as well yeah which is a terrifying thought really mm. how far have the cane toads got they have gotten about halfway across the Kimberley region of northern Australia which is where my my current project is based and when toads are introduced they're only moving at about two kilometers a year um, so you know they're introduced in the 1930s to try and stop uh, a pest beetle species or multiple species of pest beetles of the sugarcane crops in Queensland but they didn't do that instead they started to spread they were moving at about two kilometres a year, but now they're actually moving at about 50 kilometres a year, which, you know, in a westwards direction towards Broome. Um, so it's quite remarkable when you consider they're just a, it's quite a, you know, medium-sized frog. Um, yeah, they've travelled very far. Is there any idea, like, why they're speeding up or how they're speeding up? Well, they've actually evolved to, to do that within the span of one human lifetime because they reproduce so quickly and, you know, one female can lay 30,000 eggs twice a year. Uh, so the generation time is very quick uh, and they have lots of babies. They've actually, you know, evolution has quite a quick turnaround um, pace that it can work at. And the toads at the front line, uh, as if you imagine, toads at the front line are the fastest toads. So they might have small differences in their leg length and then they breed and then their babies have longer legs and then their babies have longer legs and longer legs. And so they've actually, um, at the front line, they actually have longer legs for their body and it means that they're able to, to move a lot further and, and faster. Sorry, that's just blown my mind. I'm, like, it makes sense <laughs> and it's amazing. It's also, like, terrifying and crushing at the same time. Yeah, I know. It is. It is. But, I mean, that's the that's the nature of being a biologist. You know, you, you, you appreciate the beauty that you see and, and even I can appreciate, you know, the tenacity uh, and the resilience of the cane toad, you know, that's been brought into Australia because it was our fault that it was introduced. So, we, you know, we are responsible for that. But to see how those natural systems are able to change and adapt and that that species has been able to adapt in the short time that it's been here, it's kind of um, it's quite um, awesome in the true meaning of the word. Definitely. Is, is there any chance that our, the locals, are they adapting as quickly as well once the cane toads arrive or is that sort of just me being hopeful and thinking that all of nature is going to try and like help keep up well we actually see uh we see huge mortality of predators that eat frogs ahead of the front line they don't know that um, for the most part you know they don't it's just another frog to them and they eat it and the, the cane toad toxin is so potent that uh it's designed as a defensive chemical so the animal's not supposed to you know be able to eat the toad before it's the chemical starts working so the the death is very quick and so animals only have to mouth the toad for you know 10 seconds and they'll die and but so we're not saying really there's no physiological resistance that animals have to the cane toad toxin as in there's no pre-existing immunity to it but some animals within the population are, are behaviorally different and this is where the animal behavior stuff comes in some animals are um yeah, they have different personalities and they might be shyer and so they may be more wary of a new item of prey and therefore they won't eat it and survive. So there is pre-existing kind of uh, variation within a population which means that some animals are more prone to, to being killed by cane toads and some aren't. Um, but in general, the animals that are impacted are impacted very heavily because it's such a quick death and um, the invasion front across northern Australia just arrives like a tsunami and so there's really no chance for those animals to learn. And so that's the premise of our strategy is that um, you know, I actually go ahead of the front line and just before the toads are about to arrive within one wet season and, and give these animals, give these predators this experience that makes them sick 
doesn't kill them like food poisoning and they remember that and associate that with cane toads uh, and so when the cane toads come through they avoid them. I'm imagining if this works out you'll end up with like helicopters doing like giant drops of cane toad sausages all across the the northern expanses of Australia. Yep you are dead right Amelia that's actually what's happening right now so the the project my, my postdoc uh, that I kind of developed after so I, so I tried this methodology with this large goanna uh, and we know from other people's work, other co- uh, you know co- colleagues, that all of the predators that are impacted by cane toads actually can learn. And so, what after my PhD, I uh, put together a grant or, or an application or a project, a picture project to a, a heap of different partner organisations, including the WA Parks and Wildlife, the Indigenous Land Council, the Kimberley Land Council, WWF. Uh, and the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, so conservation organisations and this big group of stakeholders, because this is now the most promising strategy that we have to try and decrease the impact of cane toads, put together this project and we all came together and, and now that's that's what my postdoc is. I actually I actually run that, those and direct the science behind um, that rollout and we, we are indeed developing a bait that is being trialled by dropping out of helicopter and yeah, we, we target populations ahead of the front line that are really biodiverse because the cane toads are nearly all the way through the last kind of most biodiverse region of northern Australia. So it's it's really time critical. Yeah, you can't sort of relax about this one. Mm, yeah, no, it's um definitely, yeah, feeling when you're aware of, of an invasion that's happening, sometimes it's hard to sleep at night. <laughs> well, and they're not like a classic invader who wears a big like uniform and is quite visually obvious and that sort of thing like they're sneaking through the undergrowth and how do you actually map where they are well being a frog they need to go to water to breed uh, and that is probably some of the first signs that you see in the environment Um, you might hear them before you see them and you'll hear the males calling out at night uh, trying to attract females to the water bodies to breed Uh, so that's one way we set up kind of acoustic acoustic posts that that can monitor the frog calls at water bodies uh, and then we can we go back and collect those and see whether they've picked up any cane toads uh, another sign a quite an unfortunate sign is that you start to see dead animals in the environment uh, and and in that look perfectly healthy and there's a few warning signs so you might find animals near water bodies that look perfectly healthy they may um, be in weird positions kind of contorted positions because the cane toad toxin is a cardiotoxin so it sends the uh, predator into a cardiac arrest and they kind of spasm uh, so yeah you, you kind of you can see evidence of that uh, but apart from that you can also look for eggs tadpoles they're very distinctive because we have no toad species in Australia they're dark, they're black tadpoles essentially and in big big numbers and they're also out in the daytime but once the tadpoles are there uh, it, it means that the toads have maybe been there for almost a year but just in very low numbers so there's a number of signs that we look for um, and they're quite predictable if the wet season's good, they'll move at about 50 kilometres a year. And so we, because I work closely with the WA state government, Parks and Wildlife, we have very, you know, we've got quite a, I'm a, I'm, I'm kind of the directing scientist of that, of that particular project uh, with my manager, but, um, but yeah, all the partners, we all work together to kind of monitor them. Yeah. This definitely sounds like a team effort. This is not one person with a uh, microphone. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, definitely not. So with all that in mind, the, the fact we're looking at this giant continental scale invasion, what does an average day at work look like for you? <laughs> it varies considerably. Mm. Uh, so, and, and it's seasonal. It depends on the season. So if it's a 
the more the summer months through to say March or April or May even, I'm up in the Kimberley, uh, in a remote part of the Kimberley usually, driving around, four-wheel driving, sleeping in a tent, um, working closely with Indigenous rangers from the respective you know land that I'm on or that we're working on together, and we're working with animals. We're either you know catching and marking goannas, uh, surveying freshwater crocodiles, we might be radio tracking snakes, uh, and we're mapping general biodiversity, so conducting kind of trapping sessions either with physical traps or with remote wildlife cameras. Um, but then I also, you know, I've got lots of partners that I work with up there. So I'll be meeting with Indigenous elders and cultural committees, uh, some of my other partners, um, government departments. Yeah, and then actually spruiking the project. A lot of people are really interested in the in the project. So I might be doing radio interviews or... So, so yeah, the days in the Kimberley are very long and they're hot, but they're very beautiful and exciting. And I, and I feel very, very lucky to do the work that I do. And, um, and then in the cooler months, I'm back down south and I'm spending a lot of time at my desk. I'm analysing all the data from the field season and uh, hopefully writing good scientific papers. But as being an academic at a university, I'm also supervising students on their projects, which may be related to this project or, or not. Um, I'm also having lots of meetings and, and um, partners or with my, my manager, Rick Shine, my supervisor, uh, or planning and designing experiments and thinking about what we might do next. But uh, yeah, so this is kind of my postdoc, but I've had a long career in conservation with many different you know, types of animals or types of ecosystems before that. And that's always been a theme in my job is, is this kind of wild, there's a really big wild component of my work, which is amazing and, and quite spiritual, you know, being out in, in the wilderness for long periods of time and getting to work with animals, you know, having the privilege of working closely with some of Australia's unique and, and threatened wildlife. And the wild animals as well. That's a very different experience. Mm. Mm. Yeah, definitely. No, I feel very, I feel very lucky. I think there'll be more than one person listening who's a little bit jealous. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I basically grew up on David Attenborough, and I think probably more than one person that's listening to this would have done the same. I hope. Yeah, but no, I, I kind of, David Attenborough was one of my heroes when I was a child, and he, he himself was a, was a zoologist, so. I've had similar experiences in some ways to him. You just need to have your own TV series now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. we've tried. You know, I've, I've actually had a lot of uh, interest in our work over the years and, and had people, you know, television crews actually helicopter out to our sites at various locations and it's quite bizarre. You know, you're out in the middle of nowhere and, and then all of a sudden there's six people there with big TV cameras and, you know, filming and it's quite bizarre it's quite surreal but it's always fun in in general is there a lot of knowledge about cane toads like are people aware of the problem I would say that they are uh you know this this theory that we're or this strategy that we're using now uh is the kind of culmination of over two decades of research on on other methods so more traditional invasive species methods work with say controlling the population trying to eradicate the population uh, or controlling, you know, immigration into an area and uh, things like that. Um, you know, think of like trapping, you know, trapping rabbits or releasing diseases or things like that. But it just doesn't work with cane toads because they are more like um, an insect invasion. They're more like a locust because they have such high rates of, of output of offspring. Yeah, there's a lot of information that we know about cane toads and we've studied all aspects of them, uh, their biology and and their impact and everything. And 
the, the, the general public have, are also very interested in cane toads. There's really interesting relationship with invasive species where the less you can relate to it, the more hated it is. <laughs> it's true. And it's, kind of, and it's, it's also the reason in conservation why we use what we call flagship species right. to get funding for other species. So, for example, if you were running a conservation program for, you know, a forest and there was multiple endangered species in there, you wouldn't be having the, you know, uh, some kind of obscure white moth as the species that you're up, that you're putting up to kind of gain funding for the conservation program. You'd be putting up the tiger, you know, or a monkey or something like that. So, yeah, it's just it's just a, an artefact of, of how we view the world that we we tend to be more interested in and more warm to things that we can relate to better. And cane toads seem to be on the outside of that. So, um, but even though that, you know, people think they're disgusting and they're ugly and whatever, but they are animals and they are covered by human rights laws. Uh, so, but yeah, but in general, people, people are quite well educated about cane toads, but it's part of my role is to, is to educate communities. I actually go ahead of the front line and, and give talks to, you know, for example, I've been doing lots of work at Broome educating people about the threats of cane toads and and yeah everyone's interested it's a really interesting one that we don't as a society we don't question at all whether or not cane toads are unwelcome but other invasive species Mm. whether it's pigs or horses or deer we're just like but they're kind of cute so we should save them (laughs) yeah yeah and that's actually the thing, you know, when, when you work in conservation, you're faced with these conundrums all the time, you know. So I've got colleagues that that work on – so, for example, cane toads have not actually caused an extinction yet. They have not caused a, stink, a species to go extinct. Cats, on the other hand, you know, nearly 200 species or something that have – cats have been directly, you know, directly kind of related to their extinction. Or horses, horses – in the alpine regions of Australia, but they are, they're, they're so controversial trying to, to do programs with horses are, are very controversial, even though they may be having a far greater impact than some of the other invasive species that we're focusing on. Yeah, there's some interesting reflections on human psychology there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. The conservation work is all about cost to benefit, weighing up the cost to benefit. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily want to be out there euthanizing invasive species. You know, that... I love animals. That's why I do what I do. And I never enjoy euthanizing, but it's a cost to benefit uh, equation that you have in your mind. And so conservationists are really passionate people. You know, we're, we're doing it for, for the love of nature, for the love of the environment, for the animals that we work with. But there's always a cost to benefit ratio that we are weighing up in our mind as we work. I think that's a really good one to highlight. Hmm. So I feel like in a sense you've kind of got two distinct jobs or two distinct worlds that you're working in. You've got your kind of like adventure science where people will helicopter in to film you and then you've got your desk job where you get the money and you get the, the papers that make all this happen. Do you, do you feel like the skills you use are quite different in those two roles or is there a lot of crossover? I would say that there's probably more of a crossover in the personal attributes that you have that are needed for that for the role that I you know that I work in as opposed to the skills because obviously the skills are quite different you know if you're in the working in the field uh, for my you know for my particular work I need to have good forward driving skills and I need and and navigational skills and I need to be quite tech savvy for the use of GPS or radio telemetry or you know mapping programs and then 
you know, for my office work, I need to be, uh, you know, I need to have kind of a, a working knowledge of statistics, or at least, uh, you know, information, you know, be capable of finding out how to how to do the things I can't do. I need to be, you know, good at writing and uh, which you can learn all those things and good at kind of being, you know, communicating well. But what I need to be first and foremost across all of those domains is passionate and enthusiastic. Uh, and I need to be kind of optimistic. You can't be a conservationist and not be optimistic because you'll just lose, you'll lose your momentum. You'll, you'll lose your will to go on, especially if you're working with endangered species or invasive species. A lot of the work you do is, is very challenging because things don't always work out, you know. So you have to have, you know, you have to have stamina and you have to have the ability to keep going um, even against the odds and have the right attitude. You know, I, I spent a lot of time through my career working in remote places uh, and it seems easy. It, it seems like it would be an easy thing to do. You just go out and you work with people in a remote place, but actually you need really quite well-developed interpersonal skills. Uh, you need to be harmonious and and diplomatic. So I would say more. It's more my personal attributes that help me in my role than my kind of skills, which which I've learned. I love that, and I love the highlighting the importance of optimism because that's so easy to overlook. Mm, definitely. Like whilst there's a romantic aspect to what you're doing, especially when you're out in the field, I imagine there's also some really unromantic bits, like mud and mosquitoes and probably leeches in horrible places yeah yes there is um you know in the Kimberley and tropical Australia and especially you know I work with reptiles so you know reptiles are active in the summer and they're diurnal which means they're active during the day so I'm literally working in the hottest part of the year up in tropical Australia the the season that's called the build-up season which is when the monsoon hasn't actually come across from Asia yet hasn't moved down across the equator to northern Australia, which is what causes the wet season, all the big rains. But it's just kind of tickling Australia. So you've got all the storms, but you've got no rain. And so the 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 the, the um it's like a tension in the air. You know, you can feel the electricity of the storms building. You can see the electricity of the storms, but you can't actually you don't get that relief of the rain or the cool down. And it's they also call it tropo season because it's extremely humid and uh, very difficult to work in. You're you're, you're literally drenched in sweat. Uh, it's like you've been it's like someone chucked a bucket of water over you and I just that I'm just immune to that now I don't even think about that it's just how you have to work because that's when the reptiles are out and you know there's the tropics is full of insects biting insects and diseases I've caught it you know I've caught diseases um, they call them zoonotic diseases which is diseases that transmit across from animals to humans Um, I've caught a disease leptospirosis which I got from wading around in water bodies as I was radio tracking goannas and that, that it's essentially um it's almost like malaria in that it just basically cuts you down really quickly I was hospitalized for over a week in a really remote hospital bush hospital um and it's taken me a lo- you know it took me a long time to recover and I still you know many many years later still have some kind of symptoms of that a lot of people suffer with dengue fever in the tropics I would say that the the pros outweigh the cons Definitely. We can't just go and do research in places that are nice. Mm. And, you know, sometimes research doesn't work. It's research. You know, the pursuit of science, the pursuit of science is, is about curiosity and it's about trying to progress uh, the hum, you know, human body of knowledge. But it's also a lot of failure in there. There's 100% going to be failure in your career. Um, but the thing about science is that, you know, failure is still a result, Um so, yeah, you learn from that, especially in conservation programs. 
there's a big push in conservation for people to kind of publish more about their failures because we tend to focus on, you know, the successes because that's what gets papers. That's what you write up in a paper and that's what's going to get in a good journal. But conservation in particular, we need to learn. We learn just as much from the failures. So kind of taking that in your stride and understanding that that um, that things aren't going to work all the time. Now, that's a really important part of the role as well. Yeah, I like the idea of sharing your failures as well because there's no point in someone else spending who knows how many hundreds of thousands of dollars doing the same mistake that you've just done but you didn't tell anyone because you were like exactly but it needs to come from the system you know we the system needs to drive that too because it's it's important to have that mentored and to to kind of take the pressure off younger researchers in particular oh you have to make that safe Mm. So you've got what a lot of people, like despite the dengue and the leptospirosis, you've got what a lot of people would call a pretty awesome job. How have you actually got to where you are now, say from high school to Georgia now? You know, I've actually just followed my passion. It's been really simple. I was lucky that I had the support of my parents to just to be myself and to be authentic and do what I wanted. I've always wanted to work with animals. I wanted to, initially I wanted to be, say, a nurse or a social worker when I finished high school and then I got my results back and my highest uh, mark was biology. And it was almost a sign. You know, I'd always been interested in animals um, when I was younger and it was almost a sign to follow my heart. So I just enrolled in a science degree. I really struggled at uni to start with because I'm from the Blue Mountains. I grew up in nature and then suddenly I'm down in the middle of Sydney in a small flat and it just felt so far away from home and from my friends and from what I was getting into it for, you know. I wasn't actually close enough to the things I loved to see what I was doing, you know, why I was doing it. And I really struggled in the first year of uni um, until I found my tribe and was a group of people uh, just in a zoology, in second year zoology, that made me really feel at home, you know. I, I really felt like, okay, no. I wasn't weird for dissecting snakes when I was a kid or, you know, roadkill or I wasn't weird for kind of being interested in butterflies or, <laughs> and that really kind of pushed me to go on. So then I continued on. I did a lot of volunteer work, which really kept my passion going uh, and, and really allowed me to see beyond just the kind of constraints of university and the exams and everything. And, um, and then I, uh, yeah, I continued on to honours because I wanted to do a research project. And I was able to work with my hero, really, my childhood hero, Rick Shine, who is one of Australia's best hepatologists, uh, probably the best, Australia's the best hepatologist, one of the best hepatologists in the world, which is hepatology is the study of reptiles. And I just kept following my nose. I just kept following my passion and just I'm pretty philosophical about my career. I'll just follow what I want to do and just try my best. And, you know, if it doesn't work out in the future, I'll, I'll just do something different. But uh, I want to make sure I'm having fun while I'm trying. <laughs> So that's, yeah, that's kind of just my philosophy. Hmm. Sounds like a good philosophy. So have you worked in conservation like as a, you know, a normal job or you've only ever done research? I have worked in conservation. So I took, uh, I took a, I didn't follow the kind of probably the conventional path with, if you, if you want to be in academia where you just continue, you know, you go from uni straight into an honours or a master's or whatever step is appropriate for your career. And then you just go straight into a PhD I took I tr- I love traveling uh and I feel that that my traveling and my experiences overseas have really you know fostered my passion and they've really allowed me to kind of have a holistic picture of of the world and of the conservation issues that we're facing and so I've traveled at every opportunity 
I'm taking years off in between school and uni and then years off in between a year off in between uni and honours and um, and then I took four years off actually between my uni and PhD uh, to to work in across industries because I didn't know whether academia was going to be for me because there's a lot of you know academia is quite struck you know rigid and structured you have to there's quite a, a kind of conventional path through academia I think if you're a biologist you can kind of you can't buck that path, but you can definitely, you know, have a pretty good life while you're progressing along that path. But I wanted to see whether academia would be the best way for me to have an impact as a conservationist. So I worked across multiple sectors. I worked for government. I worked for private consulting. Uh, I, w- I worked for conservation organisations in the not-for-profit sector. Uh, and really, I, I came back to, to do a PhD because I wanted to be skilled uh, and have enough credibility to make decisions, make make conservation decisions, and that's why I kind of came back to academia. Um, but I'm not saying that I won't in the future. You know, who knows? I may I may end up back in I may end up in government. I may end up uh, in a kind of a, a higher up position in a conservation organisation. But I wanted to develop my scientific skills so that I was competent and capable. I love the acknowledging that one of the values of a PhD is that it gives you credibility. And it gives you a whole lot of skills and things, but it's also people kind of need to take you a bit more seriously as well. Yeah, it's a track record. You know, it's an official track record uh, that you can hold up and say that, yeah. And, and I guess for me, the my, a PhD is an opportunity to get, you know, to do your own research. So they say that um, that you never do as good a research as you do in your PhD because a PhD is not confined by, uh, you know, competitive grant structures you you actually you get to do any subject you want for your phd uh, and so some of the you know whereas as you move further on in your career you're kind of a little bit constrained by by what people want to fund not necessarily what you want to do yeah but no a phd is useful in many for many for many different things i think critical yeah and, and so is a science degree critical thinking is a skill that i think that everyone should be trained in especially now as you move into a world of um social media and it's really important to be able to assess what kind of the, the credibility of information that you're seeing and that you're reading because they're not all equal so critical analysis is probably one of the best skills that you can get out of a scientific degree out of a science degree absolutely no doubt there were there in this whole journey were there any particular events like obviously there's David Attenborough but were there other things which have sort of really inspired you along and those aha kind of moments I would say you know obviously I was very interested in you know in animals as a kid and I would say the things that have spurred me along the way have been the experiences I've had in industry so volunteering uh and you know what I actually thought that I wanted to be a vet because I really loved working with animals and then I did work experience at a vets and realized that 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 I found that quite boring and I wanted to work with native animals actually so it's been all of these experiences that I've had that I've pushed for um, that have allowed me to really hone what it is that gets me excited and passionate so there was you know work experience as a kid then as I went through uni I I was doing um, volunteering at Taronga Zoo in the herpetology department uh, and and you know seeing what people are doing for jobs I think is really important getting exposure to different career choices is really important uh, then, you know, finding my tribe at university was a huge aha moment for me that, that made me feel not that, that this was a legitimate, you know, a potentially a legitimate career. I mean, I get paid to work with 
reptiles. I get paid to work with crocodiles and goannas and snakes and things. It's a, it's a dream come true for me. And to know that that I could actually, you know, that there were other people that wanted that as well and then to be exposed to different research projects in uni that I went and volunteered for and my supervisor who, you know, who I went and volunteered for first and see that people were actually having careers out of this stuff um, and having an impact was was huge, hugely inspiring. And that, that's really still to this day uh, is what is what pushes me forward when I see um, other people, when I see mentors and I see what can be achieved, what they're achieving. Being, having my tribe now as, as a professional scientist and, and, say, going to scientific conferences, for example, and seeing the kinds of things people are doing in, in the kinds of places and um, the impact that they're having, that really inspires me and pushes me on uh, to, to do my best and to, and to kind of stay in my field. They're wonderful motivations to have. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I guess I would say, um, yeah, just, just kind of engaging as much as you want, as much as you can and, and just remaining curious about the different options that there are available to you. And I think those moments of validation are also really important where you go from being, especially if you're at a small school or something like that, where you're the weird science person or you're, in your case, possibly the weird, like, lizard geek, and then you meet other people and you're like, oh, I'm not that weird. That's kind of cool. Definitely. That's a huge thing because, you know, as you – a school, you know, the school is kind of your parents' choice really and they choose the best school for you. Uh, and you kind of so you so you're with a group of people that you're kind of growing up with, but you may not necessarily have much in common with, or, or different things in common. And then as you progress and the choices start becoming yours, you you really can direct where you end up. And so you find yourself surrounded by like-minded people, uh, and that really helps to form your identity. And, and as you say, to to realize that you're not you know you know you know you're not so weird for reading reptile field guys on a Friday night. Well, and even if it's weird, there's nothing bad about it. Oh, definitely. Oh, I mean, that's, that's kind of what I love about, about my field is that it's, yeah, it's kooky, you know, still it's, there's, there's lots of kooky, passionate people. And, and that's really the, the thing that I, I would say that that's one of my biggest learnings about thinking about my time now versus in school is that, you know, in school, there's so much peer pressure, you know, there's so much social pressure to be a certain way. Whereas when I look back at my school years, I think the people that were kind of whatever the geeky people or the, you know, they're actually the most interesting people now, you know, they're the, they're the kind of most dynamic, interesting people doing interesting things, you know, life is, um, yeah, the world is your oyster. And, and if you surround yourself by interesting and passionate people, then you can't go wrong. And I think you're right. That gets a lot easier as you get older. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. As you build more confidence and, and you know, and your identity and you can really kind of hone your identity and, and live the life that you want to live. I think that's when, re- re- you know, that's kind of when life really starts. I gather you've also had some pretty, I guess, publicly defining moments recently as well. Yeah. Possibly had a book written about you. <laughs> Yeah, I have actually. I've had my bi- my uh, my biography written as part of uh, a book series called Aussie STEM Stars, which is a fi- currently a five book series that's uh, aimed at kids from age ten to thirteen. So it's a small, quite a small, easily digestible novel, uh, and it's basically uh, focused on scientists and innovators. Each book is features a different scientist or an innovator. Uh, and it and it, it kind of follows their trajectory into the STEM 
into their chosen STEM field uh, and, and, you know, follows their childhood and their school life uh, and, and how they kind of, how they do what they do, which is, it's really bizarre because I still feel, you know, I still feel so lucky that I just get paid to, to do what I get to do um, because it's my passion. So my passion, it's my work isn't really work because if you stay true to your passions, your work isn't really a job, you know, it's just, it's just what you do and it becomes a lifestyle. So it, it's bizarre to be, have books, you know, have books written about me and be featured on various things because um, I just feel like a little kid who gets to play with reptiles. How does it feel seeing your story in a book? Seeing my story in a book is very humbling uh, and, but it's also very, it's quite surreal. It's quite surreal. But I learned uh, a while ago about uh, defeating imposter syndrome, you know, this, this, this feeling that people have about uh, why, should, why should I, you know, why is it me? Why should I be here? Um, you know, representing this. And, and I, I really struggled for a long time about being visible, about being the one to be, you kind of saw it as kind of self-promotion. And I think in our society, there's a bit of neg- negative spin around self-promotion. But actually, what I, what I came to realise is that I'm a conservationist. And so what I value and what I work really hard to do is, is to preserve uh, ecosystems and animals and, and fight for species that don't have their own voice. And I can do that till the cows come home. But if I'm choosing to stay small and not visible, uh, I'm really selling that them short. It's not just about me, you know, because my visibility isn't about me necessarily. It's about what I care about. Uh, and, and that kind of realisation really allowed me to break free of those chains of uh, imposter syndrome or of fear of being visible because, uh, you know, I'm not doing it necessarily for me. I'm doing it to... Um, for, for, the, for what I care about, for the projects that I care about, for the species that I fight for. So I guess if I could inspire, you know, through that book, if I can inspire uh, people to, you know, kids to stay true to their passions, to become the next conservationists of the, of the planet, that would be a huge achievement. So I guess I'm willing to kind of engage in it for, for those kind of reasons as well. I've got more perspective on that. I think especially in a society which has a whole lot of tall poppy syndrome, all that sort of stuff, it can be a really challenging process to move through. And yeah, I'm stoked for you that you did. And now there's a book about you. <laughs> I, know. I know it is, it is very surreal, but um, yeah, I don't know. Life, it, it, life is, you know, it's nice to have spontaneous things like that happen in life as well. Oh, that's the best things are. Have, have you signed copies and like given them to young people who've like been excited? I have you know I have I have signed a few copies um I've been to a few schools and spoken to kids about what I do and you know read them parts of the book and I'm more than open to doing that uh with other schools via zoom uh if I'm if I can't be there in person but yeah I have done a bit of that but I'm I I am quite a modest person so I haven't really (laughs) I haven't probably spruced it to its best um, but, you know, I did get to work. I had the privilege of working with children's author Claire Saxby. She's an award-winning children's author. And she actually wrote the biography. So I was paired up with her. She wrote the biography and it's really beautifully written. So I feel very lucky not only for, you know, for the book itself to be out in the world, but for me to have that as well, written by a children's author. So And Claire's an amazing 
an amazing author and she writes very uh, interesting, educational, but also beautifully written books. Uh, so I was really very privileged to, to have made that connection with her. We'll have to make sure to include some links to the book in the show notes. Definitely. It'd be great. What advice would you give to a young person who's considering really any kind of career in conservation? I would say that the advice that I would give to young people considering a career in conservation is to really feel into what it is that gets you excited and why it gets you excited, to be really curious about that. It's really important to to know what your values are and what your purpose is, I think, or, or try to know as best you can, because it's it's a really quite a tough career. It's There's a lot of glory to it you know there's there's a lot of beauty in the career but it's also quite tough mentally and and spiritually you know in your heart and you've got to have stamina and have the have a strong will to to keep doing it uh because you can make a difference but you've got to you've got to have the ability to kind of get up when things aren't going right if you fall down to keep going or if projects fall down to keep going i would say to surround yourself with passionate people and mentors uh, are really important in the conservation field, and to just just to really try and stay true to to what you love doing. Uh, I know for me that I don't really do well at things that I'm not that I'm not passionate about, and so yeah, that 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 in some ways has helped me to hone what it is that I care about because I'm not successful if I'm not really engaged or passionate about something. I would say to be open to different career opportunities. Uh, academia is one way of having an impact Uh, but there's a lot of things that are quite difficult about about academia the work can be quite insecure uh, and so you have to be quite philosophical about it but you know as I said there's conservation organizations you can work for you can work in government at the state or federal level Uh, you can work for -for not-for-profit organizations in various ways Uh, so yes I would say taste as much as you can volunteer uh, to help you with this whole process of trying to understand what it is that you love and, and what you what you care about and where your values lie uh, and, and be persistent, definitely be persistent and chase opportunities when they come up. Yeah, I think you have you can't assume that, well, you can't even assume that opportunities will come up. You, in some cases, might have to make them for yourself as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So that that's kind of the thing that got me through as I said, you know, at university when I was struggling in those first years that uh, I just said, you know, I need to go out, I need to see what this career could potentially be. And so I was able to go and volunteer for, uh, in Chris Dickman's lab, he is a desert ecologist and we went out for four glorious weeks in the Simpson Desert and slept in swags under the stars and I got to see a whole heap of different animals that I'd never even encountered, some of which I'd never even known about. Uh, and that was the fuel that I needed to keep me going through, through, you know, I was at a tipping point at that stage and that was really the fuel that I needed to keep me going in those early years. So getting out there and, and trying, and, I, and I'd really chased that opportunity because they weren't allowing first year students to do things like that really. Um, but I was just very, very persistent. And uh, same with the Taronga Zoo volunteering, I was just very persistent about that and worked hard to make up the time in my university studies and it's really paid off in my career so making opportunities for yourself and is is really important and as a more of a senior academic now when I see people's CVs or I um, you know I talk to people I can tell who's passionate 
you know, I can tell who really wants to work in this field or at least wants to try out um, a career in this field. It's quite obvious that the um, the way that people, what they've done to, to stay involved, I think is important. Is there any way that mature people, maybe they've already got a career, is there anything that they can do to help support your work? There are lots of opportunities for people to be involved in my work and in other kind of conservation work. Uh, conservation is is often underfunded and often relies on the help of citizen scientists or um, or volunteers in the field. So I've got a website, www.canetoadcoalition, C-O-A-L-I-T-I-O-N.com, and uh, you can find out more about the project on that website and contact me through there. We're sometimes looking for volunteers uh, for my field work or even for things like processing videos of of animals in the field, which is a really important part of data collection uh, in the training methodology. Or you can approach any kind of conservation organisation. They often have field trips, you know, they, that, that are that are where volunteers are required. So the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, uh, you can sign up for their newsletters, and they often have wide scale call outs for volunteers for field work all around Australia. Um, so I would say approach conservation organisations and not for profits to be involved in what they've got going on or potentially pitch ideas to them to what for something that you want to do. If you want to start a local community group, uh, you know, even bush care groups, you could you could decide that you want to add an arm of biodiversity surveying to that. So um, in general, conservation organisations uh, or projects are always looking for help and they're always willing to facilitate uh, extra capacity. Or you could go, if you wanted to actually, you know, retrain, in the field and obviously you can do I'm pretty sure that some TAFEs and and will provide like animal identification courses or environmental science basics things like that would 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 help you um, but otherwise I would say just go and, and approach researchers sign up with universities they sometimes post volunteer opportunities so just be proactive about it and uh, and definitely there's opportunity I like it there's so much in there <laughs> Uh, yeah, so we include links to all that in the show notes as well. Is there anything that you wish the general public understood about your job, whether it's about cane toads or life in academia? Is there any kind of um, misconceptions that you'd like to squash? I would say that what I'd really like the general public to know about my job is that science requires training. You know, you do a three-year degree minimum to become a scientist. And if you want to be a researcher, then that's, you, you know, then you have to add another I've, I've studied for another four years on top of that and and so science does require training and I think we are bombarded by information uh, in our everyday lives and you know on social media and not everyone you can't just become a scientist by reading a textbook or you can't you know you, you can't refute scientific evidence if you don't understand some of the basic fundamentals of science and and the protocols and the rigor that's required um, so I guess for the general public, I'd like to to say to be really careful about the kind of information that you pay attention to. Uh, you know, within science, there's whole structures around uh, how you critically analyze information and how um, how you can tell whether information is good quality or bad quality. Uh, it's, you know, it comes down to peer review and and how many. Other scientists have reviewed that type of information. Anonymous scientists have reviewed that type of information. So when it comes to things like climate change, 
you know, which is a very controversial issue in our world, not in the scientific community, that, yeah, there's good information and, and reliable and trustworthy information and then there's just fake news and bad information. And I would just hope, you know, wish for the general public that um, that they were able to critically analyse that information uh, and, and then kind of really be able to decide what's worth listening to and what's not worth listening to. And I think probably one of the easiest things that you can think, like, well, maybe one of the easiest things you can start thinking about is whether or not, like what the motivation is of that person who's giving that piece of information. And if there's a chance that they're going to profit from that, then you might want to, like, there's a good indicator that you might need to start thinking a bit critically. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good piece of advice, Amelia. It, yeah, what's the motivation? What What's in it for the person that's peddling that information? Uh, so the thing about science, which I really love, is the objectivity of it. You know, there's a protocol around, you know, around doing research. There's a protocol around accepting information, and there's and if, you know, you you start you start out with a hypothesis, and if your results don't confirm that hypothesis, or they do, if they don't agree with that hypothesis, then you just throw that hypothesis out. You, you know, if you've disproven it, then it's um, then you throw it out and you start again. You don't hold on to beliefs that you know aren't true or that have been disproven. And and that's what I really love about science is that objectivity. And I think, um, yeah, I think if, if society was, was more able to kind of embrace that objectivity, I think it'd be, um, yeah, we'd, we'd be doing pretty well. It would be lovely. So give it a shot, people. It's, it's not to say it's easy. <laughs> it's not to say it's easy if you've, like, you know, developed an idea and you really like it and it's got a lot of potential and then it goes split giving it up can be hard but that doesn't mean it's like you should still give it up yeah definitely but I really like your advice Amelia of uh, paying attention to who's peddling the information and what could potentially be in it for them so in science we also have to um you know, in scientific research we also have to uh identify any conflicts of interest that we have so if we uh work for a you know, if I was a chemist, for example, and, and I work for a pharmaceutical company, I have to I have to acknowledge that in any scientific paper uh, so that the reader can decide uh, whether there's a conflict of interest in me, you know, discussing these results, in me putting out this paper. So there's a lot of objectivity in science, which is uh, makes the information as credible as it can be. Yeah, I think those safeguards are really valuable. Is there anything else that we haven't touched on that you'd like to share? I would like to share something. I... As I said earlier, I work closely with the Indigenous traditional owners of Northern Australia, and you know I'm a, I'm a scientist and I and I trust in the scientific method, and uh, you know work in every day, but science is really it's a tool. You know it's it's a tool that we have. It's a very powerful tool that we have Western science to uh, to kind of explore our environment and to explore our universe, uh, and it's and to test our versions of logic. But I would say that, you know, that it's just that it's a tool and that there are many versions of logic around the world uh, held by many cultures and, and indigenous peoples that uh, can get to the same place in different ways. And so a lot of what I do in my work is trying to bridge the the uh, Western science with indigenous traditional knowledge. And uh, it's um, it's very enlightening. And so I, I pay respect to the many different versions of knowledge that there are around the world, and uh, and and I work really hard to kind of to make bridges between uh, between different bodies of knowledge to kind of benefit everyone in the best way that it can. So Western science and traditional ecological knowledge are 
actually really powerful allies, uh, especially when you're doing work in ecology and environmental science. So, uh, and, and I guess I, to that, I would just say, if you have the opportunity to engage with different bodies of knowledge and different ways of understanding the world to remain curious and, and respectful, because you never really know where things like that will lead and, and what results you can get from that kind of combination of two multiple bodies of knowledge. That's fantastic. Thank you for for sharing that. I'm sort of hoping that that attitude or approach is becoming more common. Hmm. Yeah, I would definitely say, you know, from my experience of working up in tropical Australia with traditional owners for yeah quite a long time, you know, since 2012, that, um, yeah, there's definitely growing appreciation for traditional knowledge uh, and and for, you know, different ways of knowing and respect for traditional owners, uh, which is which is great. And I've actually, part of my work, which is not really my core work, but it's some of my most rewarding work is is working closely with traditional owners. And uh, we've actually had amazing findings from our project that couldn't have come about if it wasn't this kind of combination of traditional owners and Western scientists, which as you know, I'll always work with traditional owners. I don't, I think that the potential there is so great and we're finally starting to realise it. So that's very exciting. You can't undervalue that connection to the land. Mm. Tens and tens of thousands of years of connection. Mm. That's a lot of knowledge to be like trying to catch up to. Yeah. And it's very, you know, I feel very appreciative to my Indigenous collaborators that they're willing to share that, you know, for the greater good. Well, and especially because we're kind of dealing with a problem that we created. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I know. It's, um, yeah, I do feel, def- I definitely feel uh, a responsibility. I think most conservationists do. You know, we're, we're custodians. We've, we're custodians of the land and we feel uh, responsibility for how things are panning out. Uh, and in some ways, that's why I think that combination of biology or conservation uh, and Indigenous knowledge um, works so well because it's kind of similar philosophies which is the you know custodianship of land, caring for country, uh, and uh, and you know kind of fixing and helping, and and in some cases trying to make better. Am I allowed to ask like what is their opinion of the whole cane toad situation? Like, do they have an opinion? I'd have an opinion if I was them. <laughs> well, obviously, I I can't speak for anyone, no. um, but in my experience, then yeah, it's definitely been you know, a, a core philosophy of many Indigenous cultures is about caring for country and uh, and, and protecting and, and having a reciprocal relationship with country, uh, which goes beyond just the physical uh, relationship, but also a spiritual relationship. So to know that country is is being plagued by invasive species, it's it's considered a sickness, you know, the country's sick. And especially if there's if it's impacting on um, on species that are really important culturally, because they may be totemic species, uh, so there'll be dreamtime stories associated with them, or knowledge, hunting knowledge, and and language. So when those animals go from the landscape, then that can have a really big impact on indigenous culture and the way that people are able to go about their cultural practices. So it's definitely a, a big issue of concern. But in my experience, people have you know indigenous traditional owners have been really gracious and they haven't really pointed the finger, you know, of blame. They've just been, okay, well, how do we fix this? Which is very gracious. It's incredibly gracious, all things considered. Mm. Mm. Firstly, thank you so much for sharing all that. 
greatly, greatly appreciated. Do you have a virtual high five for anyone that you would like everyone who's listening to the podcast to like give that person or that organization a virtual high five? I have lots of high fives to give out, <laughs> but I would say high five to all the conservationists out there because it's a special type of person that that continues to you know remain passionate in the face of adversity and continues to fight the good fight. Uh, and I'd also high five to all of my Indigenous collaborators who are so uh, so pivotal to my work, uh, to our work, uh, and and you know we're we're all on the same page. So high five to all the people out there that that care enough for the planet and the future to kind of dedicate their life to helping it. Definitely. Lots lots of high fives deserved and possibly a beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Georgia. It has been an absolute pleasure. I've learned so much. It's been great. Thanks very much, Mila. It's been, it's been uh, very enjoyable and you keep doing what you're doing as well because we're all playing our part. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in this year. If you like this podcast, you should head to avidresearch.com.au where you can sign up to our email newsletter. You can also now sign up to our Patreon, which means that if you so choose, you can financially support Avid Research. And I have a massive shout out to our very first Patreon, David Lee, who is a fantastic human being. As a result of being a Patreon, he now gets to ask questions. He gets behind the scenes footage and behind the scenes chats. And he also gets his name shouted out at the end of every podcast. So thanks so much, David. And if you want to be number two, you should head to avidresearch.com.au and click support us on Patreon. That'd be fantastic. 